This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today, I'm talking to Victor Montori about a book that he published a couple of years ago that's being reissued now called Why We Revolt, A Patient Revolution for Careful and Kind Care. How are you, Victor? I am uh, doing well and happy to be here with you, David. And should, you know, I, I should have said, even though your name is on the book without your credentials, you are a physician. So most properly, I should have introduced you as Dr. Victor Mentori. Uh, only, only my kids call me doctor. So. <laughs> well, it's. I think that's appropriate. You know, that make sure that they pay attention to that. Um, I'm kidding. They barely talk to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this is. Well, let me ask you a couple. This book is. Um, you know, the title really is kind of cool. Um, I think it. It really lays out. Um, you know, a, a kind of challenge to anyone picking up the book to try to understand what you mean. And I think these are a series of essays that are all about your view of the healthcare system and how it really, how it is and how it could be, how it should be. Uh, but before we talk about the book, maybe you could talk a little bit about your background, both personal, you know, just in terms of your life story a little bit, but also your history of, you know, in, in medicine and how you got to the point of feeling as you do in this book about healthcare. Um, yeah. So I'm originally from Peru. Uh, that's where I, that's where I was born and that's where I grew up and that's where I went to medical school. And uh, this is an eight-year medical school program. So you spend quite a bit of time, several years in uh, in the hospital taking care of patients. Um, after that, I um, was lucky enough to match into a residency program, which is postgraduate medical training in the United States. I came to the Mayo Clinic, uh, was training in internal medicine and, and then in endocrinology and uh, to be a diabetes doctor mostly. And uh, was trained on conducting research, spent a couple of years in Canada, uh, learning more about how to do that, and uh, came back to Mayo. And I've been at Mayo Clinic uh, on, on faculty, uh, taking care of patients and, and training uh, physicians um, uh, since 2002. So yeah, the book captures uh, some of the perceptions of what's going on in healthcare in that, you know, through the experience I've, and the changes I've seen in that period of time, but also from a vantage point of care. So not as a policy person looking at the healthcare system from the vantage point of God, or as a um, individual clinician telling a superhero story of taking care of patients uh, with incredible acumen and uh, creativity and uh, intelligence or from a physician-patient suffering a, a devastating disease and uh, finding perhaps for the first time the limitations of the healthcare system simply because uh, I, you know, one goes from one side of the desk to the other, so to speak. This is different. This is um, a, a clinician who um, has had an opportunity to spend enough time with patients to partner with patients and to see the healthcare uh, system uh, around um, around that moment between patient and clinician, turning into something that instead of supporting what patients and clinicians are trying to do, which is 
care uh, turning into something that uh, modifies, uh, corrupts uh, the, the care that is supposed to be the goal of healthcare. And uh, it's about something completely different, an, an industrialized modification that uh, makes it difficult to, to experience care and makes it more likely to experience uh, cruelty. And so that's uh, that's the, the point of view of the book and, of course, the urgency to write it. Um, uh, it's always evident in retrospect. I started uh, uh, trying to write this in 2013, um, uh, could not uh, find my voice, uh, threw away a lot of drafts. Um, I was supposed to write uh, about the 10 years of experience conducting patient-centered research and uh, I was getting bored writing it, and I just assumed that most readers will get bored reading it. And so I would then let go of uh, what I wanted to do and what came out, uh, it, what kept coming out was something completely different than what I was setting out to write. And by 2016, I gave up and I just let that, uh, that voice that wanted to come out write the book. Um, it wrote itself fairly quickly, and then I enrolled every person I could to help me edit it into something that was legible. And that was the, the end result, uh, is uh, this book, Why We Revolt. Um, my, uh, the only evidence I can offer my, my children if uh, when they grow up further and look back and ask me, what were you doing uh, during those years? Um, why, why, why were you not uh, being actively involved in you know, advocating for your patients and for care, I can at least point at the book and say that I tried to do something. Well, I think you you actually did more than try. I think the book is really successful. I, I do want to say the, re, the the writing is extremely personal and very warm, and I think pretty expressive and clear. Uh, it's a short book, and you you um, lay out a really strong position. I think that that you know, it, in the sense of relating to patients, you relate to readers. So I, I give you credit for that. Um, one of one of the things that struck me is that you lead the book off talking about the industrialization of medicine, and it really strikes strikes a bell or strikes a, a chord with me because I've thought a lot about. Uh, medicine, healthcare as commodity, body as commodity. You know that that the, the we the system treats the patient as a product, um, almost like a factory. And you're calling it industrialized. Really rings true to me. Yeah, I think uh, many uh, many of us when we become patients and uh, uh, are seen in healthcare, taking care of in healthcare we often recognize two different experiences. One, which is, I suspect, the dominant and uh, uh, experience, which is the experience of being processed through. And another one, which is the experience of being seen, noticed, um, and responded to, cared for, which occurs invariably by somebody within the system getting out of their way to notice you and respond to you. And it is those moments uh, where somebody gets out of the way, in other words, somebody violates procedure essentially, that you have moments of deep human connection, moments of caring, the kinds of moments that uh, when we reflect back on our experiences with the healthcare system, we will describe to our friends and family as almost magical or yeah. miraculous. Right, which is which, which is sort of striking because that's exactly what it should be. You know, and I agree with you. I think we think each of us can think back to when we were, when a, a a doctor or healthcare practitioner um, 
actually stopped their busyness to pay attention. And I think that's really a challenge for so many doctors. It's sort of interesting too that doctors I've spoken to and 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 some of whom are writing books of their own are also there's a kind of moment where they're all feeling the same as you do coming at it from different perspectives no doubt but the idea this sort of sensibility that what they wanted to be doctors to do which was to heal and to care for those two really important frameworks um, get buried in the system get lost subsumed derailed uh, in the ways that you talk about in the book uh, and yet the power of the connection between the patient and the doctor is so strong that it overcomes that system in those moments that you talked about just now that we notice but they shouldn't be magical they should be more the norm yeah and it's it's interesting because again once you see it that way it's uh, it's hard to unsee and it's hard to not see it elsewhere i mean the other place where this happens routinely is in education and how how often people refer to that magical moment where this particular teacher saw me noticed me and then took me under their wing and 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 helped me you know see my real vocation or something along those lines i mean the story repeats in higher education all the time and in both education and, and healthcare, the, I think a, a unique insight of the book, which you know I didn't know it was a unique insight until you know you finish writing the whole thing and you realize it's a it's a topic that comes through, is that in many many analysts of healthcare see the clinician as part of the machinery, and see the callous, uh, uh, disconnected, uh, inattentive, uh, absent clinician. As, as just simply a representation of, of the rest of the system. Uh, for me, the patient and the clinician are both victims of the industrialization, um, very much like it is in education where the, the teachers um, and, the, and, the, and the students are, are, are the victims of the industrialization of education. And it's actually quite interesting. We're having this discussion in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and both education and healthcare are trying their darnest. I mean, the, the people in those, in those quote industries are trying their darnest to connect. They're trying their darnest in one case to, to educate, uh, in the other one to care. And they're using all the technologies and everything that's available to try to do it. And it's the hardest thing. You know, patients don't see, uh, don't, don't find that they, they're, they're, they're seen. Um, uh, students uh, at every level are finding the experience of teleeducation very bizarre and impersonal. And uh, everyone is missing personal touch. And, um, and it's interesting that in, in the midst of COVID, one of the things, in the midst of COVID, one of the things that's been clearly illustrated um, that I think validates the book, which was written three years before, or was published for the first time three years before COVID, um, is that uh, it was very clear that the efficiency of industrial healthcare led to hospitals not having personal protective equipment. And when it, when it came time to use it, uh, the, the frontline clinicians didn't have them, but neither neither the caregivers, the, 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 the family members of, of patients who were in nursing homes or were dying. And so we have 
professionals, health professionals getting infected with COVID and some of them dying from COVID. And we have patients uh, and nursing home residents suffering uh, breathless and dying alone without a hand to hold of a loved one they can recognize uh, by their side simply because our efficiency meant not having any stock of personal protective equipment so that we can uh, surge um, in case of a pandemic. And so that it, that became a, a very clear illustration of how industrial healthcare can be cruel to both patients and clinicians and uh, something that I think the, the, the some of the chapters in the book um, announced uh, a few years before. Yeah, well, I think one of your, I love one of your kind of, you have some, um, you highlight that by saying it clearly in this in the healthcare system, time is money, and it, you know this really is definitional. Um, and I think by you know by comparing it, healthcare to education, I think it's you've hit on something that's really important. What we've industrialized things that really, uh, uh, I would say, don't make sense to industrialize. In other words. And it, you you talk about this also in the in the healthcare system. There are nonprofit entities, um, but they begin to they act like profit entities in a profit making system uh, because the the need to compete is for resources for doctors uh, to operate within the. Uh, healthcare insurance system, reimbursement system is all the same, whether you're a nonprofit or a profit-making institution. And I think that's true in education as well, that the um, that it's a mistake to take these core values of human society and make them, uh, uh, turn them into capitalist operations. I think that that is really, you know, a kind of observation that you can draw from this, that that is revolutionary by itself, you know, to say, we don't need to run the healthcare system, the education system, as if they were businesses. Yeah, and it's interesting, because, of course, that runs uh, counter to the economies. I mean, I live in Minnesota, and the, the state of Minnesota's economy runs on the opportunity to make money in the healthcare system through both devices, health insurers like um, uh, United Healthcare is uh, uh, has its headquarters in Minnesota, uh, and uh, offering care, you know, through healthcare organizations uh, and several health plans in the Mayo Clinic are in Minnesota. So the whole state really runs on the healthcare dollar, and so to then say, well, look, healthcare should be a human activity and. Uh, it should be almost infrastructure and investment that we make in ensuring that the capabilities of our citizens can be realized uh, in all their uh, in all their potential without being hindered by, for instance, ignorance or disease. Um, instead of making thinking that as an investment, in other words, as a net loss, that this is this is resources we're going to put in without expecting to take out. Instead of thinking in that way, we think of it as as uh, this is a this is a, a seventeen or twenty percent uh, GDP sector of the economy in which there is, that's a pretty big pie. And uh, thank you very much. I would like a slice, and uh, I'm going to take the slice of telemedicine, or I'm going to take the slice of insulin pumps, or I'm going to take the slice of uh, you know temporary employment for emergency physicians, or I'm going to take the slice of anesthesiologists for rural hospitals. And so everybody's trying to get a slice. And, and many of those slices are either nonprofit that, that really do generate quite a bit of a profit or, or, or for-profit organizations. 
And so every time somebody draws money from the system for, and that money goes to their pocket rather than to care, they, they leave care anemic of the fundamental resources necessary for care. And here again, most people might think, oh, you mean MRIs or, or, um, or antibiotics or, or sophisticated equipment. The fundamental resource for care, particularly for the most common patients that we see in healthcare today, which are patients living with many ongoing chronic conditions, is time. And one of the fascinating things for me as, a, as an author about this book is that even though it has lessons learned from my time in Peru and my time in the United States, the book has been particularly popular in uh, Canada, Australia, England, Spain, countries that, that, that run their healthcare systems through a publicly funded approach. And there, the final common pathway of taking money out because of profit is really not present. But what is present is, 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 is the frequent austerity policies that, draw, that, that fail to invest enough money into healthcare. And so the final common pathway on care is the same. There are not enough resources um, when it comes time to, to, for patients and clinicians to come together. And the number one resources, resource that we need and, and the one that suffers the most is the lack of time. Well, do you think, I guess this sort of gets to the core question that it, your book leads me to, and that is what would be a reasonable uh, proposition, you know, how, because I actually think you're, you're, you, you draw a really important point there. And that is the publicly funded health systems and the privately we'll call the United States one, a private one, let's say, even though it has public involvement, um, you know, the two different notions of how healthcare should be provided. Neither of them seems to succeed in terms of quality of care, patient being at the center of the, as you, as you point out, you know, the idea of the patient being essentially the customer and being at the top of the, of the pyramid rather than at the bottom. Um, neither system seems to do that. And I, I don't think it necessarily leads us to say that healthcare is a diseconomic system. It does, uh, it's part of, you know, everything participates in whatever economic system you want to propose, but what would be a reasonable structure? if you could propose one, uh, prescribe one essentially, uh, that, that you think would work uh, to, you know, to provide the kind of time that's needed for care, as well as preserving the values, which you talk about a lot in the book, uh, the values of care, caregivers and patients together um, to heal. Um, how, 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 how does it work? Yeah, I think um, the, the wouldn't it be nice if I just had a simple recipe <laughs> and and, uh, and then uh, you know and immediately then everyone around the world is uh, is uh, you know uh, <laughs> silly right for not doing it. Um, I think there are several factors here for us to discuss. One is uh, the first obvious conclusion is that look at all the time that we spend in the United States discussing about. Uh, whether everyone should have access to healthcare and how we pay for it, right? That's that's the whole debate: is access and 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 financing of healthcare, um, and uh, the discussion right now about Medicare for all, whether we cover people with pre-existing conditions, these sorts of discussions, Obamacare. It's all about access, access, sorry, and and financing. Um, there are there is, there's really no public debate about the nature of what happens in the healthcare system, of what should be expected once one has access to it. 
And, and I think there might be a, a reasonable prioritization of that debate because, of course, if you're leaving out a substantial proportion of people from uh, healthcare, you have a huge justice problem that you need to address. Um, uh, but if you act, if you give access to a lot of people, and then the access that you give is to a system that that is cruel and does not care, you also have a justice problem. But you know, again, that second part doesn't hasn't uh, gotten the level of discussion that I think is necessary for us as a community, as a society, to formulate a model that will reflect our values. And that's the, that's the other part is that, you know, it's not a matter of imitating, oh, we should have the Canadian system or we should have the Taiwanese system or we have the, the German system. Um, I, I think just like in, in medicine, we would like the treatment programs for patients not to be for patients like this, but rather for this patient. Um, the healthcare system uh, that uh, we should have here should not be um, for for countries like this. It should be for this country, and that creates a particular challenge because it seems to me that different parts of the United States operate appear to operate under different set of values, and so it may be that the healthcare system that works well. In, in Northern California, Silicon Valley sort of area might be quite different than the healthcare system that might do well in Texas or in Florida. And it, it itself might be different from the one that might do well in DC or in um, Minnesota and Wisconsin. So it will be interesting to have more community level discussions about what we would want in terms of healthcare. Recognizing the United States has multiple experiments going on at the same time. The VA system is publicly funded and publicly delivered. Medicare is publicly funded, privately delivered. Um, most other uh, uh, healthcare organizations are privately funded, privately delivered. So we have all the systems represented in the United States. And one could compare the different experience people have in all those systems and draw conclusions, and people have done that. But what is missing is the debate about what is it that we really want as a community, as a society, for a healthcare system to be. And also, I think the other thing that's missing is demonstrations of alternatives to the highly efficient, uh, uh, highly technologically processing plant of healthcare that we sometimes uh, uh, honor in the top 10 list of best hospitals and clinics of North America. And so actually our organiz organization, the Patient Revolution, which I, I chair, um, and uh, where the proceeds of the book uh, go and fund that organization, um, is actually at the moment designing a demonstration site, a demonstration clinic, where we're gonna try to answer the question, what would it take uh, to have careful and kind care as a matter of routine uh, for patients? What, what is the cost of that? What, what, what kind of clinicians does it take? What kind of teamwork does it really demand? What are, are the resources that are necessary? And so forth, so that we can contribute to that discussion whenever it occurs, which is not happening yet, um, so that people can, can visualize clearly an alternative to what is here. I think the, the role of us uh, in the book and in the organization is to help people imagine clearly something different from what they're getting now. And the hope, of course, is that once they can visualize an alternative, um, they will not stop working until they can get it, which I don't think will be a matter of reforming the current system, but fundamentally to turning, it will require turning away from it, uh, turning away from industrial health care and towards careful and kind care for all. And it's in that word, turning away, 
uh, and turning to that we find the the, the root of the and, and the reason why I use the word uh, revolt. No, I think that's I, I really think that's interesting. The and I hadn't really thought about that in healthcare, even though it's clear that the let's say the United States as a country quite large has tremendous variation regionally. Uh, culturally in different areas of the country and it makes per, it does, it makes a huge amount of sense to think of us uh, think of structures and systems on a local community basis for change rather than kind of theoretically or from a you know from a systematic top-down point of view which is actually what your book is all about is it's trying to turn us around from thinking to think about um, humans up rather than policy down um, and I think that's, I think that is a really interesting conceptual framework to try to figure out how you can support people in making that change. Yeah. I, I mean, I, it's, it's fascinating when you start looking at, um, at where the, I call it the arrows, uh, point. I mean, somebody tells me, asks me, how do you know you've been successful? So, well, you know, you look at the arrows and so one arrow you look is, uh, the arrow of no money, no mission, right? And uh, with the minute uh, right now, patients like it was uh, put in a cartoon in a New Yorker a few years back. Uh, patients are ATMs, you know, for health organizations. What else can we do for you? Is really an opportunity to find yet another procedure we can do so we can make money uh, from it. So patients as ATMs is it puts the patient care as the means and uh, the financial success of the organization as the end. And how many times we as clinicians hear, oh, we probably need to see a few more patients so that we can make our financial targets for the month, the year, whatnot. So we need to change that arrow and return to the notion that um, uh, the, the, the financial resources, the physical infrastructure, the technology, the time, these are all means that we put to use in order to achieve our end, which is to take care of people. And so we need to we need to switch that arrow around, make sure that the end of all these uh, healthcare organizations is to care for people and everything else is firmly put in the means category. And then the other arrow is the role of the administration, of the technology, of the health IT department, of the insurers, and if they ever have a role and uh, the pharmacies and the pharmaceutical industry and so forth. Their role is is to support what what ha is happening at the bedside. But it is to support patients and clinicians trying to figure out how to improve, how to advance the problematic human situation of this patient. And so all the elements of the system should be constantly asking themselves or asking the question to the clinicians and the patients: What else can we do to support you in what you do? Uh, rather, what's happening today is patients and clinicians are constantly have to beg that system for the opportunity to get care, you know, get authorization, pre-authorizations uh, for, for coverage uh, of this and that product of this and that treatment, um, the documentation of the need and paperwork for this and then the other. It is pretty clear that it is clinicians and patients that have to beg for that opportunity. And furthermore, um, they're held accountable for the quality of care and if they don't succeed at the quality of care, they're blamed for that. Patients are often called non-compliant as a result of that, and clinicians' quality measures are used sometimes to affect their, their income or their reputation. Um, and so that arrow needs to switch. Patients and clinicians are doing the real work, 
And the rest of the system needs to ask, what can we do to make that work more productive, more effective, more caring? So do you, are there examples that you can give of uh, projects or places in America that if you're, let's say we've, I've read your book and I'm interested in going further, what would you recommend uh, that, that someone look at? Yeah, that's, um, that's a, a tough question. I think there are some examples out there that unfortunately is the same ones that everybody uses. Um, and so one of the things you probably notice in the book is that I don't, I don't, I don't do what most uh, nonfiction books tend to do, which is to pick these stories from all over the world and to illustrate the points. And if you read enough of these books, they're all the same stories. Um, they're all the same stories. Um, that um, that are in all those books. And so um, uh, one of them, for instance, is this um, organization in the Netherlands that uh, took uh, the home health nurses and um, gave them uh, complete uh, autonomy to organize their work and stratify their work. So they, they had they, they were they went from an industrialized nursing system in which if a, if a older person living in their home needed wound care, they will ship the wound care nurse to come in and, and, and look at the wound. And that nurse could see that the patient also had other issues, but they were not empowered, authorized, allowed to do anything else. If they notice something, they might go back to the corporation and say, do you, do you, should you send the, the nurse that deals with uh, food or the nurse that deals with medications? Because I think the patient might be confused about their medication. But, and so, so the, the patient will see multiple nurses, none of which really talk to each other, and each one dealt with either a body part or an issue separate from the others. And this system was very expensive, uh, very efficient, and then the nurses had to clock in and clock out for every visit, and they had targets to meet in terms of the number of houses and number of hours they have to, they have to work and so forth. And what they did is they they, they changed that system. And, and what they did is they basically um, made small groups. I can't remember now what the total number of nurses per group is, but let's say it's 25. It's not very large. And then they were given a, a sort of a, a series of patients to care for. And then they had to basically figure out how they would organize themselves to do it. And the way they did it is the way I think everybody would do it, would prefer to do it. A nurse will develop a relationship with the patient, will get to know the patient well. I mean, they were coming to the patient's home. So this is a fairly invasive service. And so trust was very important. And this um, this this, uh, uh, this nurse will come into the house, get to know the person, and then do everything. You know, do the, do the wound and the, med the medicine and the, you know, the, the food or whatever is necessary. And then they, they also connected these nurses to other nurses through a, through a website that they had. They connected them with other nurses that may have had expertise in other areas. And so these nurses were sharing expertise and they were in non-competitive environments. So they no longer had to meet any, any targets. They just had to make these patients better. And um, the quality of care went up, the costs were way down, and the satisfaction and turnover of the nurses went essentially to zero, right? So that would be an example where the system was redesigned to support the clinician, in this case, the nurse, going into the patient's home, and it was designed to support care, in this case, based on a relationship of trust. Um, so uh, that's one example that I, I, I often point to 
uh, of, of a system that was completely redesigned and not only uh, achieved uh, healthcare outcomes that were superior, but also human outcomes that were superior. And turns out, which is very nicely for sustainability, that it turned out to be a lot less expensive than the original one that, that, that it replaced. Well, I think at least there's some hope that there is a way that this can be done. I really, I do think it's a huge challenge, but I think that, that it's important to think about this and to get people uh, uh, aware, you know, aware that there is a possibility for change to occur and make them uh, uh, feel more optimistic about it. Because I think we all kind of feel powerless at this point. I think that the, the, the fundamental issue of power that at least the book is trying to promote is First, we can choose the language we use to describe things. And I think in choosing the language, we, we, we might want to reject the language of industrialization um, and, and, and use the language of care uh, to describe those good moments and of cruelty to describe those bad moments. And so that, you know, the book goes into further language, but I think using the language of care might be something that we can all do. And then it's my job and the job of others uh, with the privilege that we have to identify and clearly delineate what an alternative future might be. And I really love uh, Rebecca Solny's distinction between optimism and hope. You know, an optimist is someone who thinks that the world is going to be better no matter what you do. Of course, the pessimist is the opposite. But the optimist is someone who really knows that, uh, you know, things might not uh, turn out the way you would dream they would. But there's a shot, there's a chance, there's a sliver of, of, of probability. And that sliver depends on what we decide to do today. And I think the notion of, 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 of why we revolt, of a patient revolution for careful and kind care, is the notion that there is a shot, that we might turn this around, but it really depends on what we start doing today and what we sustain over the next couple or three generations. And maybe we can surprise ourselves. And at the end of this, we might find us, uh, ourselves with a system for my kids or maybe my grandkids that really is primarily about caring for them. I, I really, I hope you are right. I tend to agree. I think that hope is the sliver that we have to depend on and not just in healthcare, but in so many other things. Um, I want to thank you, Dr. Victor Montori, for taking some time to talk to me and uh, thank you for writing Why We, Why we Revolt, A Patient Revolution for Careful and Kind Care. Uh, this has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk. Thank you very much. Thank you.